Hello and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. My name's Leanne Butterworth. Today we are talking to Graham about empathy and medical dispatches. Hello and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. My name is Leanne Butterworth. I'm an empathy educator, TEDx speaker, founder of the social enterprise Empathy First and all-round healthy empathy enthusiast. Today we're talking about empathy in an emergency call centre or more specifically, the role of empathy as an emergency medical dispatcher. Joining me today is Graham Lerner, an emergency medical dispatcher of 17 years. Welcome, Graham. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, what got you into this work and what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, when I, I'm going way back, when I left school, all I wanted to do was be a drama and PE teacher. So I was at uni studying to be a drama and PE teacher. And I went out on my first prac and I realised that I don't like children very much. (laughs) So it wasn't the right place for me to be. So I'm sorry, mum, but I dropped out of uni. I started working in a uh, communication centre for actually pay TV. And while I was doing that, I actually did that with a goal to move into the ambulance network because my aunt works for the ambulance in the communication centre. And I would go in some afternoons and nights and I would sit with her and I would just watch what she did. Um, I couldn't join in. I couldn't listen in very much. I was just watching one side of the conversation. But A, she's one of my favourite people and B, she was amazing at what she did and she just made it look so much fun and so rewarding. So watching that really inspired me to turn into who I am now. But first I wanted some experience in a call centre because I didn't think it was right to go straight to emergency services, um, answering triple zero calls with no experience of being on a phone whatsoever. So I I worked for a pay TV service and after three years of being yelled at for people not paying their bills and not having pay TV or people not willing to work with me to fix the situation, which we could do over the phone, but they wanted a technician, I realised my time in the pay TV world was up and I did an application for the ambulance service. And I must have done well because I was in there pretty quick. And that's where I've been now for the last, well, since 2006. Wow. I've had 15 years as a call taker and dispatcher. And now I've moved on to, I have more of a focus on education. Okay. And also quality assurance, which is I sit down, I listen to calls and we provide feedback to staff on their performance. Yeah, right. If we go right back to basics, can you explain what exactly an emergency medical dispatcher does. Like, what is the role? Absolutely. There's actually two roles that we fulfill. We've got call taking and we've got dispatching. So the call taking is we actually take your triple zero calls. So if somebody calls for an ambulance, what they do is they call triple zero. They actually get through to a call centre in Melbourne. And that call centre actually says, police, fire, ambulance, and what's your location? Once you've spoken to them, they actually put you through whichever state that you need to go to and to whichever service you need to go through. So we actually have separate ambulance, police and fire. So if you get asked for ambulance, you'll come to me. Yeah. I'll pick up the call and we actually go through, we'll find out first where you are and what your phone number is. The reason we do it that way is because we can't send an ambulance to a symptom, but we can send an ambulance to an address no matter what happens. Okay. So if the call drops out, but we've got your address, we know where you are and we can get to you. So we do that and then we actually go through a set list of questions which are provided by an academy which is worldwide and we'll go through those questions and we'll triage your call and once we've done that it'll go through to our dispatchers 
which is our second role. Okay. And the dispatchers actually move the ambulances around and we actually tell which crew to go to which job. We get them the backup they need. We get them anything that they need. Yeah, right. Um, so we've got two roles. We support the community through calls and we support our paramedics and the community through sending the right ambulance to the right job. Yeah, right. So you could be doing those two roles in the same shift? In the same shift, yep. Not at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> but where I've been working, we actually split it into two. So okay. it used to be you do a full shift of dispatch and a full shift of call taking. We've found where I was that 12 hours of intense dispatching is mentally exhausting. <laughs> and yeah. we didn't make mistakes, but we weren't as quick okay. towards the end of that shift as we would be if we split it into six hours and six hours. Okay. So we will do both in a shift or we'll just call take in a shift, but we won't unless it's dire straits do 12 hours of dispatch. Yeah, right. And by the sound of it, 12 hours of call taking would be similar, wouldn't it? It would be Look, exhausting? 12 hours of call taking is tiring, but you get some downtime between calls. Okay. Dispatch is constant. You're always thinking, where am I sending my next ambulance? What am I doing with gotcha. this job, look at my jobs that are waiting. What am I going to do with that? Have they been contacted? Are we still in touch with them? And then you've got your active jobs. So we're waiting for our sit reps there. Our crew's safe. What's happening in relation to our crews? So dispatch is constant. Okay. Call taking, we try and staff it so that we can have three to four minutes between calls. We shouldn't have triple zero calls waiting. Okay. And we have a system where the triple zero call could be answered anywhere in the state. Okay. Not just in more of the communication centre in your nearest area. Gotcha. So there is some downtime in call taking, but the relationships and the intensity of the work that you can do on call taking can often be a lot more than dispatch. Yeah, right. So call taking is emotionally draining, dispatch is mentally draining. Yeah, gotcha. And that's an important distinction to make as well. Absolutely. So you said that your aunt was a call taker yep. and you use the words fun and rewarding. What are your favourite things about being a dispatcher? I love that I can help people without having spent years at uni. Okay. I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'm not a studier. I wish I was. I wish I could sit down and do studies. I wish I could have been a paramedic. I wish I could have been a doctor. I wish I could have been anything. But I sat in a classroom and my mind just went numb. Gotcha. We've done six weeks of training in school and then the rest of it is in-house and we learn on the job. Okay. That I can do. And from that training and using the systems that we've got, I've been able to deliver children. Like I've delivered more than 10 babies. I have a lot of fun with my crews. And when I'm on a dispatch board, which is something that I've actually made sure I maintained is that dispatch exposure. Yeah. When I'm on a board, I like to have fun with my crews. They've got a hard job. Yeah. And they're exhausted. And if I have a little bit of fun on the radio, then I'll do that. Yeah. It's not recommended. And as I say to a lot of people that are just starting off, don't do what I do, do yeah. what I say. But with experience and with exposure, you can have that fun. Yeah, and rapport, I get. Absolutely. So I feel the relationship that I had developed with my paramedics on road, that a lot of them worked with and for me. Okay. Rather than against me, which is what they can do if you're overly demanding, not listening to what they say and, and what they do. Yeah. That's the dispatch side of it. But the call taking side is really where you get the most internally rewarding moments. And they're not just happy moments. Like, yes, I've had the privilege of 
delivering some babies. But I've also had the, I guess it would be an honour and devastation at the same time of being on the phone with somebody as they've passed. Yeah, wow. And knowing that I'm the last person there for that person, I'm the last voice that they're going to hear. Wow. But I'm with them and they're not alone at their worst moment. Yeah. That's what gives me true joy in this job. Yeah. As well as true nightmares. And it's an interesting way to look at it, that it's such a a generosity, such a privilege mm-hmm. to be with that person, yeah. but to have such that dichotomy of it is the privilege, but also that's a huge weight to sort of carry. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it sits with you. And I couldn't tell you the names of anybody because I... I'm really guilty. A lot of people are really good at using names on calls. Yeah. I don't. That's how I depersonalize my calls. Gotcha. Is I'll use a lot of sirs and madams. Okay. If I've lost control of a call, which doesn't happen very often, but if I need to bring somebody back and really focused on what I'm saying, that's when I get a name. Uh, What do you mean by lose control of a call? When we speak to people, they're speaking to us at the worst moment of their life. Yes. Often. And so when you think about the worst moments in your life, you're not calm. You're not having a chat. It's not like we are right now. It's really intense and they can be screaming and crying, yelling. They can be angry. They can be scared. There's a lot of emotions that all come through on these calls. We don't have the ability to touch somebody on the shoulder and say, we're here for you. Yeah. So we've actually got to do that vocally. So one of the best ways that we can do that vocally is by using somebody's name. Okay. So if you were calling me and you were, devastated and you were yelling and you were panicking because your child was, for example, having a seizure Yeah, and I couldn't get your control and I haven't been using your name through the entire call. If I suddenly went, Leanne, yeah. I need you to work with me here. We're going to work together and we're going to help your child. That's how we bring them back. Gotcha. Does it work first time? Absolutely not. Yeah. But it can. And if that doesn't work, then we've got other things in our pocket that we can use. Yeah. But that's what I mean by taking control. Yeah. We need to control our callers. We can't have them controlling us because yeah. we've got a place we need to be. Yeah. So is that one of the biggest challenges then, that that emotional, I guess, volatility at the other end of the phone? Like what are some of the big challenges of the role? There's some funny challenges. And one of the funniest is we've just got to believe what you tell us. Yeah. So... I know this isn't quite the direction we were going, but I just want to just take one second just to to give you an idea of what we do. If you just close your eyes for a second, yep. you hear your kids yelling in the bedroom and you walk into the bedroom, you've got your arms tied behind your back. Yep. You've got your eyes closed. Yep. All you've got is your mouth and your ears. Yep. Two kids yelling at each other and you've got to find out what happened. Yeah, right. That's what we do on every call. Yeah, because you've got you're missing so much, aren't you? Absolutely. You know how I was talking about the name? Words matter for us. Yeah. And the way we use them matter. Yeah. The biggest challenge is that words matter. Yeah. And we don't get to touch somebody on the shoulder. We don't get to give them the hug. They don't get to see our face. Yeah. So one of the most relieving moments for somebody in an emergency situation is when that paramedic walks through the front door and they know somebody else is looking after it. Yeah. We don't get that. Yeah. And we actually rely on the person that we're talking to to take on the role almost of a paramedic for for the short term. So we're going to tell you what to do to look after that sick person. 
We're going to help you yeah. to help them. But you're not the one fixing it. We can't fix it. Gotcha. Uh, you got me to fill out a bit of a form before yeah. we kicked off. And one of the things I said on that is we're not fixers, we're helpers. Yep. Because we will help you to look after yourself. We will help you to stop bleeding. We will help you to perform CPR. We will help you to stop somebody from choking. Yeah. We can't do it. We don't have any hands. We don't have any eyes. We've got our ears and our mouth. So we rely on what you tell us. Yeah. And we rely on you following our instructions. Yeah. It's a lot of trust to put in somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Both ways. I've never actually called Triple O in an emergency. I've called it for police and... My husband called it Mm -hmm. when I was having my first child. Yeah. And that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Then we waited for the ambulance and I went to the, yes, because everything progressed quite quickly. Quite quickly. Quite quickly. So what are some of the common misperceptions people have about your role? First thing is that we are not actually paramedics. Yep. Emergency medical dispatchers are purely trained to go through like we've got a senior first aid certificate, so we've got advanced first aid knowledge, but we don't have years of university behind us to teach us what to do. We've got a system that we follow and we're going to ask you some questions that might sound weird to you, but they actually make perfect sense in the long run. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to determine who needs an ambulance first. Right. Because just because you call us with your sore toe, it doesn't mean you're going to get an ambulance straight away. In fact, I can guarantee you're not. Yeah. If you've got a sore toe, we're going to be going to breathing difficulties, chest pains, unconscious patients, births, um, anything that's life-threatening. So we actually triage all our calls. Gotcha. So one thing I'd love people to know is if you're waiting for four hours for an ambulance, it's not because we don't care. Yeah. It's because there's people that need it more than you do right now. Yeah, right. And I guess it's that when people think about dispatches, we don't think about people. You don't have a face and we don't know who you are. Does that sort of bring out different behaviours in people because they can't see you and you can't see them? I think it comes back to what I was talking about before in relation to the most relieving moment for somebody is when that paramedic walks through the door. Hearing us say that we're here to help you, it's a bit of relief, but it's not the same. So, yeah, it does make it more difficult and it does make it easier for them to get angry and frustrated and annoyed because... They don't feel that we're helping them. Yeah. Because sometimes when somebody's unconscious, there's nothing you can do. We can just sit there. Yeah. If you've got a sore toe, we don't want you to be in pain, but we can't give you an ambulance before somebody else. Yeah. That's in in more of a needing situation than you. One of my favourite things to hear is somebody saying, well, I wouldn't want to be short of breath. Because it takes all of my self-control to say, well, if you were short of breath, you'd have an ambulance. Yeah. And you'd be pretty peed off if somebody with a sore toe was getting an ambulance before you with your shortness of breath. Yeah. So there's a reason that things happen. Yeah. We don't want anybody to be waiting for an ambulance. Yeah. It's not our goal. The reality is we've got a huge population. We've uh, got a restricted number of ambulances. Once we don't have any cars, we can't send you somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not going to die, you're not going to get our priority. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's working within a system as well, isn't it? I mean, it's not people take things so personally, mm-hmm. not realising that there is a massive system sitting behind you and what you're doing and the work and the, yeah, the staff shortages and the, yeah. I mean, we hear the word ramping, all these sorts of things. So then what is the role of healthy empathy in your job? I mean, if we go back to healthy empathy is the ability to share and understand the feelings of someone else and respond appropriately. By the sound of it, you have so many relationships that you are managing. You've got the person on the end of the phone. You've got your colleagues. You've also got your crews. Yep. What is the role of healthy empathy in all of that? We have to be careful not to get too invested. Yep. And like I gave you an example before, I don't use names because when I'm using names, that's somebody that I actually develop a relationship with. We also need to understand that we are going to develop extremely intense relationships over a very short period of time. Our services are very good at looking after us and saying, you know what? You just took a shock and call, take five minutes. Yeah. They're great. What we are really bad at as emergency dispatchers is taking five minutes because there's another call coming in. Right. There's that sense of Emergency, that sense of obligation. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And we do something, we often talk about treat each patient as if that was your own family member. Yeah. How would you feel if your family member was in that situation? How would you feel if your family member had a sore toe and was waiting for three hours? Yeah. I'd be annoyed, but I've got a background, so I understand it. Yeah. How would I feel if my grandmother had been on the floor for three hours and needed to be get up and was injured and she had to wait an hour or two hours. Yeah. I'd hate it. I'd be angry and I'd be frustrated and I'll do everything to get that person the help they need. Yeah. It works in getting us that empathy and that, that understanding of how we're going to dispatch our ambulances and what we're going to do. Yeah. It hurts in the fact that sometimes we over-personalise our calls. We yeah. say, I've just got off that call with this lady that's been on the floor for four hours. She's cold, she's shaking, but she's got no injuries that was my grandmother, I'd feel terrible, but we need to go to this person with breathing difficulties first. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like it's finding that balance then between, I said, I guess, keeping your emotional distance so that you can remain objective. And to me, that's all part of that responding appropriately piece. So it's still humanising the person, but not to the point that it's going to detract from you personally, your ability to do the job or your Ability to be objective, is that right? Yeah, 100%. It's really difficult to remember that the decision that you make on this one call can actually affect five or six other calls. So if you've got this call that you're really worried about, isn't really that sick, they've just been waiting a long time, and you say, you know what, I'm going to speak to a supervisor, I think this court case needs to be upgraded, we need to get to them sooner. If we do that, it means that some jobs that were ahead of them are actually going to move behind them. Gotcha. So by doing the right thing by this one person, are we doing the wrong thing by five others or are we doing the right thing? Yeah, okay. And it's a really difficult distinction to make and that's why there's two things that prevent us from just doing that blatantly. One is a dispatcher just can't upgrade a case on their own. Unless there's a change in the caller's condition or the patient's condition, we leave the case as it is and we put it through to a supervisor that can actually assess that and make a decision on whether it needs to be upgraded or whether yeah. it can start coding that it is. 
The other thing is our system makes up our codes. Okay. So we'll go through all the questions with you and the system says, this is an immediate response. This is an immediate response with or without lights and sirens. This one can wait. This one can wait a lot. This one can really wait. So we've got a system that does that so that our emotion is taken out of it. Yeah, okay. How long do you stay on the phone with someone for? Me, as little time as I can. Okay. If somebody is really unwell, like if we're likely to have to commence CPR or if they have really issues with their breathing, we'll stay until the paramedics arrive. Okay. So most of my calls personally will go from three to five minutes. Okay. But I have taken calls that have gone for an hour and a half. Wow. Taken a call on an island where somebody had drowned and we were performing CPR. It was storm, so we couldn't get a helicopter over. We had to get a boat across. We were performing CPR the entire time, waiting for a boat to get across to that patient. Wow. Um, that patient survived. I know nothing else about what happened. Yeah. But I know that that patient survived at least the trip to the hospital. Yeah. So how do you practice empathy? Is it harder to practice empathy for somebody with a sore toe or something that you just sort of go, oh, come on? Like how do you do that without, I guess, dismissing them? Because for them it's an emergency. For them it's it's big, but in the grand scheme of things, maybe they don't, I mean, they don't want to have perspective. It's not about yeah. other people. It's about them at that moment. It's difficult. In all honesty, it's difficult. But I remember and I train anybody that I train that no matter what the reason this person's called for, this could be the worst moment in their life. Yeah. And just because it's not scary to us, it doesn't mean it's not scary to them. Yeah. And the other thing is we can't see it. So we hear a bumped toe and we think it's nothing. Toe could be at right angles and partially amputated, but they've just told us it's bumped toe. Yeah. It's a tradie with a thumb hanging off. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a scratch. They're, they're all calls that we've had. Yeah. We've had that call for somebody that called up because they've got chest pain and it's an ongoing story that we've got in our service. It's called up because they've got chest pain. We turned up and they had a knife in their chest. Way. So we've got to treat everything as it could be the worst thing possible. Yeah. Again, I was telling you previously, the most frantic caller I've ever had was a young girl. I was actually mentoring a student at this time and we picked up and she was ranting and she was raving and she was squealing and she was hollering. And as a trainer, I sat forward in my thing going, here we go. I am ready. We're going to be doing CPR. I'm going to be getting everything getting ready. Yeah. Learning experience coming. Learning, yeah, <laughs> my, my student's going to clench a little bit and I'm going to have to be ready to support. I've got an eyelash stuck in <gasps> my eye. Sobbing. Oh. We couldn't laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I sat back. I could laugh. I unplugged and laughed and I left my student to it for a bit. He was pretty experienced by the time. But he looked after her and said, look, we gave her some instructions on how to flush the eye yeah. and eyelash and we organised her an ambulance. She was scared. Yeah. This was the scariest moment in her life. Yeah. And that stuck with me. Those are the stories that I remember and I use that when I'm training and I use that when I'm coaching and when I'm telling any stories to anybody. It doesn't matter how little it is to us. Yeah. It's the worst moment in their life for them often. And that makes perfect sense, like the... The emotional response, if it's painful, if it's scary, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people aren't thinking, oh, 
like somebody's got it worse than me. And that's sort of one of the conversations that we have in empathy is whatever somebody's telling you, whatever their experience is, we can't completely invalidate it by going, well, somebody's got it worse than you because it doesn't matter in that moment. That person's allowed to feel however they feel and the fact that she felt, I guess, safe enough to call you at that, that's an interesting Mm way to think about yeah. it, hey? But it teaches you, you know, that it is the scariest moment for anybody. And I know I've said a couple of times through here, we've just got to believe what people say to us. Yeah. But I've had too many times where what they've said to us is unbelievable and turned out to be true. There was one job, it was in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they said, I was just driving down the highway and I think I saw somebody doing CPR on the side of the road. Don't know if they were. I just think they might have been. Yeah. So we've got two options. We send it out as a welfare check or I saw CPR. We send it out as CPR is being performed. Yeah. So we sent it out as CPR is being performed. So we've got two crews, full paramedic crews, plus a critical care paramedic, which is like a advanced paramedic with additional drugs and additional skills. And there was somebody on the side of the road doing CPR that hadn't called us because they didn't have any bars on their phone. (gasps) And we transported that patient to hospital and they survived. Wow. If we'd gone non-lights and sirens response to that, which is what the welfare check would have been, we might not have had the same result. Wow. Too often, something that we don't believe is true. Yeah. So if you tell us something, we're going to believe you. Yeah. Absolutely. Unless you give us a reason not to. If we've talked about, I mean, you've got empathy for callers, whether they are eyelash in their eye or their toe has fallen off. We've got empathy for our dispatchers, which you've talked about, and what they're going through and how to, I guess, build relationships with them and the the value of those relationships. In terms of your colleagues, what sort of relationships and support is going on there in terms of supporting your colleagues? Yep. We are a dark, dark place. Dark humour is the world of the operations centre. When I started, we were in a water crisis. The first jokes I heard was people taking dibs on extra water minutes when somebody passed. Uh, It's not because we thought it was funny that they'd pass. It's just how we dealt with it. Gotcha. So it's a dark place. And our dark humour which and things that we find hilarious, we pass that on sometimes to the people around us. They don't find it so funny. Gotcha. But that's something that happens in that operations centre so that we can cope with each call. Yeah. Because if you don't laugh, you're probably going to cry. Yeah. We also really watch out for each other. Yeah. So there's always listening. You always know what's going on. If somebody is on that really difficult CPR call or a child any child case really brings up emotions. You'll often touch base with them once they've finished that call, as long as you're not on one, and they say, are you all right? Do you need to take a couple of minutes? So we do watch out for each other that way. Yeah. We also have a very good peer support network, which is after, we've got certain types of calls that after you take that type of call, you'll receive contact out of hours just to touch base and make sure you're okay and you're sitting okay with it, whether it's two or three days later. Yeah. It won't be the same day. It's usually two or three days later, sometimes a week, just to make sure that what you're doing hasn't struck you a day later. Okay. So there's a lot that we do to reach out to each other 
and to pat each other on the back and to say, you know what, I heard that call. It was really tough. You did a good job. Yeah, awesome. Two questions. I guess the humour is interesting because you're not laughing at people. You're sort of laughing at situations and you're laughing, I guess, making light of a situation as opposed to laughing at people. Is that? Absolutely. We would never laugh at somebody. We might laugh at their situation. Yeah. But we care about the people. Yeah. And we're not laughing that somebody's passed away. Yeah. We're coping with the fact that they have. Yeah. And that instead of focusing on that, we need to focus on something else. Yeah. It's like we spoke about in the um, Conversations About Death podcast about how laughter can be so therapeutic and so lightening. Yeah. The other question I have is when you said take five minutes, what do you do in those five minutes? Like is there, are there techniques that you have or do you just sort of walk around, you stare at a wall? What does those five minutes look like? Often it's just not picking up a phone call. And for me, what I'll do is I will step outside, take a couple of deep breaths. If I need to cry, I'll cry. If I need to just get myself in the headspace for the next call, that's what I'll do. Yeah. If I need to take more than five minutes because it's been a terrible call, I'll take more than five minutes. Yeah. We'll never get in trouble for taking a break after an emotionally devastating call. Yeah. It's recommended, it's wanted. Okay. So if I need to take a little bit longer, I'll take a little bit longer. And our supervisors are really good at looking after us. So they might get contact and say, look, Graham's been off the phone for 10 minutes. Yeah, he just took a really bad call. Yeah. He's just how it needs a minute to cope with it. We're going to give him another five and then we'll have a chat. Yeah. And I guess it's that intention as well. As you've said, your intention is not to skive off. Your intention is you want to get back on the call. You want to bring your best self to the next call. Yeah. It's not that you're, I guess, being willfully absent. Yep. It's you need to practice whatever it is, like that self-care in order to bring your best self to the next caller. Is that right? I need to be ready for the next call I pick up to be as intense as the call that I just got off. Yeah. Because I would be doing an injustice if I've just got off a devastating hanging and I've given somebody all of my heart, all of my time for that 15 intense minutes. We've done CPR, I hang up and the next person calls and it's another hanging and it's happened, you know, it does happen. Yeah. And I'm not ready to give them that same emotional support that I just gave somebody else. Yeah. So it's not just for me, it's for the next caller, it's for the room, it's for everybody. I force myself to take that break. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the sorts of things in terms of self-empathy or understanding yourself? Because by the sound of it, you really, after 17 years, have gotten a good understanding of your needs, how you react, what your intention is. How do you practice that or encourage the earlier stage career dispatchers to practice that? It's a lot through example. Okay. So I show them that I do that. When I'm mentoring, I talk them through it. And when I'm supervising, I tell them to do it. And sometimes our supervisors have to be really strong and tough and say, you know what? I know you don't think you need a break. You're not in the right position to take the next call. Yeah. Take five minutes. Gotcha. So a supervisor has a really big job and that's a whole other conversation <laughs> for you. But that supervisor has a big job in watching and looking after not only what happens on road and on the calls, but looking after that staff in the room and their emotional stability yeah, and their ability to pick up the next call. Yeah. Is burnout an issue? Yes, 100%. Yeah. 
Burnout usually happens pretty quick though, okay. is what I would say. Whenever I've mentored somebody, I said, you're either going to last for two years or 20. Okay. There's no real middle ground. You don't have many people that last five or six years. If you make it to two, you at least usually make it to 10. Okay. So what sort of things cause burnout? We have a heavy workload and it's not taking that time between calls or not being able to take that time between calls. And it's also not identifying sometimes what is the call that triggers you. It's not always the hanging or the CPR that triggers you. Remember somebody I worked with, really strong call taker, really passionate about what he did, never seen him wave it on a call. And he took a call for a two-year-old that stuck a fork in an electric socket. Just a little zap. They weren't actually harmed. Yeah, okay. It wasn't unconscious CPR or anything like that. It was just a zap and the mum was scared and the kid had a jolt. Yeah. He got off that call shaking. Yeah, right. And I was like, mate, I've, I've never seen you react like that. What's going on? He said, I've got a two-year-old at home. Imagine if that was him. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, so you can take as many CPRs as you want, but as soon as you take a two-year-old, you need to take a minute. Yeah. That thing that, that you said about you imagine that it's your family, but you don't actually internalise that it's your family. I guess it's finding that distance. Yeah, absolutely. You, you imagine it is, but... The idea of picking up a call for my family, Mm -mm. that's sort of my nightmare. Yeah. You can't depersonalise it when you know the person. Yeah. In terms of after the call, so you've got five minutes. Yep. Do you ever find out what happens to people? Do you get that closure? Do things stay with you? Does that weigh on your mind? Very rarely. Okay. Okay. It rarely, you get closure or rarely it weighs on your mind? Rarely we get closure. And look, reality is rarely it weighs on my mind. Okay. Because I know that in the time that I've spent with that caller, I have done everything possible for that person to survive. Yeah. I couldn't have done any more. If they're not going to survive, that's their fate. Yeah, okay. I know I'm throwing you a lot of examples, but another one that comes to me is I was fortunate when I was 16, I lived in South America for a year. So I came back and I was fluent in Spanish. I had a call that came in when I first started and she was Spanish speaking, spoke no English, managed to come through to me. Wow. So I took the call in Spanish. Her partner had stopped breathing. We'd started CPR in Spanish. So we couldn't have got a better result. Crew got there, gate was locked. So we had to find somebody to open the gate. Got inside, door was locked. Got into the door, elevator needed a swipe card. Patient didn't make it. Yeah. There was no way that patient had a better chance of making it than the situation that they got. Yeah. So sometimes when they call us, the patient's already gone. Yeah. It sucks, but it's our reality. Yeah. So... I don't like to know what happens after I finished on a call. Yeah. Because I could sit there and think about what I could do differently or I could just appreciate the fact that I was there to help them there and then. Yeah. And I've done everything in my power yeah. to make sure the best, there was the best outcome for that patient. Yeah. And that's similar to what Tammy Bullard said when we did empathy and paramedicine. She said, when I'm in that moment, I give you 110%. Mm-hmm. And then I never think about you again because I have to take 110% to the next person. She has to protect her mental health. So it sounds really similar in that 
highly emotional, highly stressful situation. Yeah. That in order for you to keep doing the things you want to do and helping the people, you have to practice that self-care. You have to practice that self-empathy. I think sometimes we forget that when we're having normal everyday conversations, we have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We can't take it on. We can't carry it around. We can't feel all the feelings of all the people and make it ours and take responsibility for it. Yeah. And that sort of seems to be the theme that's coming up for a lot of my guests and experiences is you be there in the moment, you're fully present, you do everything. And it, in the, I guess, the muggle world, it might be a hug. It might be a smile. It might be, thank you so much for telling me that, but it doesn't make it yours to carry. Yeah. And I think on the other end, like as a member of the public, what you're saying aligns with what we want as well. We don't want you taking our stuff to the next person. Yeah. We don't want you to bringing the last person's stuff to us. Absolutely. We don't want you to feel it with us. We want to know that you're there with us, but not that it's impacting you in a way that would then impact other people. Yeah. So what do you want the public to know? What are some of the things that you want us to understand so that we can better empathise with you and your role? Yep. So the big thing to come back is when you speak to us and when you call triple zero and you're speaking to an emergency medical dispatcher, specifically, again, ambulance, because that's all I know, you're not speaking to a medical professional. Okay. We're not going to diagnose you. We're not going to fix you. We're not going to do anything. We're going to ask you some questions. And because we can't touch, taste, see, feel, we ask these questions to work out how sick you are, and we deal with each call on a worst possible case scenario. So if you call with five or six different symptoms and they could mean that you've got a cold or it could mean that you've got severe breathing issues, we're going to work on the fact that you've got severe breathing issues Yeah. because we can't eliminate it. So we're going to ask you questions. We're going to treat it on worst case scenario. And just because an ambulance is coming lights and sirens to you, it doesn't mean we think you're going to die. It just means that something's going on that we need to know more about and we need to know it sooner than later. Yeah. So we ask you some questions that sound really weird (laughs) and they sound really stupid, but they're really important. Yeah. When you call, as I said at the beginning, we're going to ask you for your address and your phone number because we can send an ambulance to an address. If you drop out and we can't make contact with you, we can still come and check out an address. Yeah. If you call us, if we went straight into what's going on, I've got chest pain, I can't breathe, and then you collapse, we've got nowhere to send the ambulance. Yeah, gotcha. We can guess, and we've got some equipment there to really make some good educated guesses. Yeah. But it's still a guess. Yeah. Whereas if you tell us and we confirm it with you, we know we're going to the right place and you'll get an ambulance. Yeah. So then, I mean, the reason we do these episodes is to give us an insight into your world, to give Mm -hmm. us an insight into what it's like and to, in a way, humanise the role that, for you especially, does not have a face. And like we've said, people are more likely to get angry. They're more likely to, I guess, abuse because, I mean, it's the same as trolling. We troll, people troll, because we don't know who the other person is. They don't have a face. Even there was some research recently, that's why people are mean to cyclists on the road is because Mm. they don't have a face, so they don't see them as human. So that inability to humanise somebody means that 
we behave in different ways because there is no consequence to that. You're not in our brains. You're not a real person. Yeah. So by doing these episodes, I'm trying to humanize your role. What do you think the benefit is of understanding the role of an emergency medical dispatcher? I almost think you got it in one, and that's to realize that it's not a job that a computer can do. Yeah. It's a human, and there's a human behind there that has real emotions, real feelings. They've got real consequences to what they do, not just for you, but also for them. Because as much as I say I don't think about every job that's that I've ever taken, I've got some that sit with me and I go back and I, I reflect on them and do I do the right thing there and do I do that? I'm very fortunate. I've got people that I can talk to about that so yeah. I don't keep it inside. But we're humans. We've got real consequences to what we do. We are thinking not just about you but also about the next person and we are thinking about our family at home. Yeah. Whether we like to admit it or not, every call we think – what would we do if this was a family member? What would happen if this was somebody I cared about? When I'm mentoring, the feedback I give every student is by the end of our mentorship, my goal is for me to be comfortable for you to be the person that picks up the call from my mother for my father. Gotcha. So everything we do is not just for the public, but it's for ourselves and our families. Yeah. Because I want everybody to be as good as they can be so yeah. that if my family member calls for an ambulance, I know they're going to get the best help they can. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's that understanding intention as well. Like we take so much personally these days. Mm -hmm. We put so much negative intention or they don't care about me. Yeah. And it's, it's not true. No. Like you said right at the start, you love your job and one of their favourite things is the ability to help people. Yep. That's what keeps you going? That's what you sort of think about in the five minutes. Yes, you might be deprioritized, but by the sound of it, it's because you care so much. It's because there are other callers who are impacted and because it's so personal as yeah. well. My care for you can't come above my care for everybody else. Yeah. So I care for every single person that calls us and I want every single one of you to get an ambulance. Sometimes that's not the reality. Yeah. Sometimes we can't get you an ambulance. Sometimes you may need to wait seven or eight hours. Does it suck? Absolutely. Yeah. Not as much as it sucks for the person that would have had to wait four or five hours with shortness of breath if we let you go first. Yeah. I think my ambulance was half an hour of pushing on the bedroom floor. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody was thinking about getting into this role, if mm -hmm. this is something that people go, you know what, yeah, I'm not into university. I really want to help. I want to practice empathy. I like high team, high stress. I like those environments. What sort of advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about getting into this area? This isn't the job for everybody. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and a lot of people come in thinking it's the job for them because exactly what you were talking about, the wanting to help, but there's two sides to our job and dispatch is a very different brain. A lot of people can call take, not a lot of people can dispatch. Right. So there's a lot of, you've also not only got to have that empathetic side, but you've got to have a very analytical side to your brain as well. And you've got to switch between the two very quickly. Yeah. I would tell everybody that this is a great job, but be ready. There's some fairly vigorous testing when you start off. Okay. 
just to see if you've got the brain not only to care but also to dispatch. Yeah. Because we don't necessarily just employ dispatchers or just call takers, sorry. You need to be able to do both. Yeah. There's a few that we've got call takers only, but that's not how we that's not how we employ our stuff. Yeah. So you've got to be ready for two completely different worlds. You've got to be ready to separate somebody else's reality from your reality. Yep. You've got to be ready to be sworn at. Yeah. Because people will swear not at you but at the situation. Yeah. And if you don't like somebody using swear words, probably not the right place for you. Yeah. If you can't separate being sworn at to somebody swearing in a situation or general conversation, we're not the place for you. Yeah. If you don't like somebody raising their voice at you, we're not the place for you. Yeah. If you can live with all that and have somebody yell at you and then you give them a verbal hug back, yeah. give us a try. Yeah, amazing. Because it sounds like there are so many, so many skills. So whether it's emotional intelligence or that analysis or that being able to, yeah, verbally soothe somebody. Yeah. To me that sounds scary but it also sounds exciting in that same way that, like you said, you can do all of that and really have a massive impact on somebody's life. Yeah, it's a privilege that we get. It's a curse that we get. Yeah. It's really a, a real mixed bag. But I get very passionate about what I do. I don't know if you could tell. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky and fortunate to do what I do. Yeah. It has been some of the most rewarding moments of my life. It's been some of the most devastating. Yeah. And I've unfortunately had to call an ambulance before. And it was funny because the person that picked up was somebody that I trained and the person that dispatched it was somebody that I trained and they looked after the person that I cared for very much, yeah, very well. So that's where you get the reward of being a mentor and a trainer as well. Yeah. And that sounds like it's something that would potentially not prevent, maybe alleviate burnout in some way, that perspective of what you are doing is a huge gift. It's a huge privilege and understanding that there are those two sides yep. to it. I think it's hard to do. And sometimes when we're taking our what we consider less important calls, the important ones are really at the back of the brain. Because really those big CPR calls and those hand calls, it's probably one in two to 300. Yeah, right. It's not the regular call that you will take. Yeah. Most of your calls will be falls, chest pains, shortness of breath. Yeah. Most of them you can be off in five minutes. Yeah, right. The calls that that we hear about that aren't real, do they get stopped by that initial dispatcher or do you ever get those as well? Well, we, no, we'll get them. Okay. Like uh, prank call type? Prank call sort of thing, yeah. Okay. Everybody that calls will get an ambulance. Yeah, gotcha. So if we can't eliminate that this is definitely a job, then we need to find a way to get them an ambulance. Yeah. And we can spend a long time trying to pinpoint where that call came from yeah. so that we can send somebody to go there. Yeah. And if they call and say they've got a medical emergency, they'll get an ambulance Yeah. unless we can prove otherwise. I've had a moment where I spent nearly 25 minutes performing CPR with somebody and it was believable. I was drawn in. Yeah. I was fully committed to this call. I was ready for the crew to come in there and save a life. And they've knocked on the door and it was the right address. I've confirmed the address with the caller. 
they didn't live there. <gasps> there was no patient. There was nothing. Yeah. I said, look, we're there and nobody's answering and the caller laughed and hung up. <gasps> so. And the, the flow-on effect of that would be massive. I mean, we've talked about people having to wait. We've talked about sort of backlogs in the system and the implications of how severe you are and that yep. would have implications. It, it, look, it does, but I could get angry about that. Yeah. Or I could move on to the next call. Yeah. And nothing's won through anger. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's definitely a swear word as they've laughed and hung up. Yeah. Okay. Said that out loud, two deep breaths, but I wasn't distressed after that call and I was in the right place to take the next call. Yeah. Gotcha. Because you know what? I'd rather it be. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Than actually having potentially lost a life. Yeah, absolutely. Can't be angry when there's not a patient. That's a good <laughs> way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Graham. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. I was a bit nervous. I wasn't sure if I could give you what you wanted or give oh, you the stories you needed. I feel like I want to keep asking questions and keep getting stories. I feel like you would have some amazing stories. But just genuinely my heartfelt gratitude not only for coming along today but for also the work that you and your colleagues do. Like it is so important. It is so important and I think it is so undervalued. Yeah. And for me today to just show gratitude to you and genuinely, genuinely, when I was talking to people about this episode, they're like, wow, I've no, like, I don't know if I could do that. I'd love to know. So there's so many people interested mm -hmm. in what you do. And I think that it's a really powerful and I hate the word interesting, but interesting insight. Yeah into that world because people genuinely do care and we just don't see it apart from, you know, like hyper-sensational movies and things yeah. like that. So genuinely grateful for you coming and talking to us no, today. I, I thank you really for allowing me to come on. A big shout out to all the uh, EMDs out there around Australia. Yeah. We have a tough job, but it's very rewarding. We're lucky to do it. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now, if people would like to contact you, please email me and I will give you Graham's details. Yep. But, yeah, you can email me at leanne at empathyfirst.com.au if there's any questions that people would like to ask you, Graham. Yeah, they can send Absolutely. it through I'd to me. Absolutely. I'd be really look forward to any questions coming through to me. I'm more than happy to talk to anybody. Absolutely. As you can tell. <laughs> I reckon you will get some emails. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of the Empathy Podcast. What an enlightening discussion. Thank you, Graham, for your time and your expertise and for all that you and your colleagues do. Now, if you'd like to learn more about how to practice healthy empathy without burning out, you can listen to our other episodes or take an empathy quiz, or you can find it all on empathyfirst.com.au. My name's Leanne Butterworth, and that was the Professional Empathy Podcast. Empathy.